0: Welcome to Dangerously Likely, I'm Caleb Smith and I'm Terrell Couch. And today we're Dangerously Likely to talk about World War III.
1: Let's go above the fold with this
0: week's headlines. So today we're going to start off with some bleak climate news for everyone this week. Sorry. Yay. <laughs> on Monday, scientists announced that the drought in the American Southwest that began in the early 2000s is the most severe drought the region has faced in at least 1,200 years. They were also able to link human-caused global warming as a major cause to the drought. Surprise, surprise. And then on Tuesday, an update of a climate study done in 2017 on the effects of global warming and sea level came out. It states that coastal sea levels in the U.S. will rise about a foot by 2050 and floods experienced today will become far more damaging using newly advanced tools and technology. The scientists are able to predict with extreme accuracy that not only will sea levels rise by a foot by 2050, but will rise two feet by the end of the century. They also noted that while doing everything we can to cut greenhouse gas emissions is vital, the sea level rise will happen even if we do everything
1: right. You live in Idaho. Why are you even concerned about that? (laughs) You just now have beachfront property. Congratulations. A,
0: interesting part about the article is that like they talked about how the kind of the shoreline, the coastal line on the east coast of the US is a lot more like sedimentary and yeah, can be eroded a little bit more. So it'll be worse over there than it will be on the west coast. Yeah. Which it's interesting. It sucks. But we just kind of a reminder that we need to do everything we can to not make it worse. Too late. <laughs> to an extent. <laughs> to an extent. <laughs> In other news, Trump's family business and personal accounting firm has officially cut ties with him and his family, declaring that it cannot stand behind the last decade of of financial statements it had prepared for the Trump Organization. Currently, Trump and the Trump Organization are undergoing criminal and civil investigations into whether or not Trump illegally inflated the value of his assets. Yes. This comes after a report came out that that Trump left with roughly 15 boxes of documents when he left the White House. But her email's right. (laughs) <laughs> including classified documents. Butter emails, right? Butter emails. The National Archives, where those documents are usually recorded, has since asked the Attorney General to look into this.
1: Not great in the legal front for Trump right now, huh? But you know, BlackBerry is like breathing a sigh of relief that they're not Blackberry. in trouble this time. <laughs> I forgot they existed. How? Her emails. <laughs>
0: you have any comments about these these stories today, Terrell?
1: I think I've exerted most of them. But <laughs> I mean, I, I do think. I think there's an hypocrisy that we've talked about in this pod a few times of will Trump ever face um, repercussion or some type of accountability? And I've always been clear of no. He's a former president. And there is just this belief that it would be catastrophic for a president to face that kind of er, um, repercussions. However, um, I think we're starting to get to the point of does that unspoken doctrine still carry weight when you have a former leader that unilaterally ignored the rule of law, did not honor the core principles of a country that him and his party claim to care so vehemently about. And also, as this is all happening in reference to the January 6th commission, um, it sounds like they were covering something up. So at a certain point, you really do have to question, um, and this is directly to the Biden White House. Does it do more damage to live up to this belief that it would look bad for the U.S. to cart a president off to jail or is it doing more damage by not seeing that and kind of signaling to the rest of the world especially as we get into our main story that um, the rule of law doesn't carry as much when you have a certain title or when you have power let's check out the international fold Um, While the world is anxiously following the news coming out of Ukraine, there's a growing tension in Canada reminiscent of the United States COVID protests that occurred last year. The quote unquote freedom convoy has paralyzed the country as demonstrations broke out in major cities like Windsor, Toronto, Calgary, and so many more, um, all protesting a vaccine mandate and the Canadian government's restrictions um, as they relate to the COVID-19 pandemic. For our Michigan listeners, this international story probably hits really close to home as protesters close the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Canada and the U.S. through Windsor into Detroit. Um, And according to NBC News, it carries more than one fourth of the trade between the two countries. On Monday, President Justin Trudeau took steps to manage the growing crisis in the country by invoking Canada's Emergencies Act, granting the government broad powers to, quote unquote, restore order. Trudeau has outlined plans to tow vehicles, freeze personal and corporate accounts, and even suspend insurance on individual rigs as means to combat and deter deter individuals from participating in this convoy. Also, interestingly enough, through his actions, they've been able to get some more understanding of how this convoy was funded, finding that about half of the donations to the Freedom Convoy did come from Canadians. However, um, there are some major organizations and companies from other countries that also contributed to um, the, the organizations and protests. That was from a leak, and there's more information to follow. The Deputy Prime Minister... Christiana Freeland um, was quoted saying, consider yourself warned, send your rigs home. Also noteworthy in the international lead, um, the United Kingdom's Prince Andrew has agreed to settle a sexual abuse lawsuit by making a sizable donation to Gafri's, his accusers, charity. Lawmakers in Ethiopia are lifting a three-month-long State of emergency on Tuesday, citing developments in ending the conflict taking place in the Tigray region. And lastly, following the ruling of the Court of Arbitration for Sports, the Olympics are facing new or are facing a renewed racial scrutiny with the allowance of Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva to continue in competing without recognition.
0: Let's talk about that for a second. Let's get into it. Just just specifically the Russian figure skater, because basically they're letting her compete, but there's not going to be a medal ceremony if she places mm-hmm. until this is resolved, which could take months. And I just want to ask you, do you think that's fair to the
1: other athletes that like, I don't know, didn't
0: use performance enhancing drugs?
1: I mean, right off the bat, no. Right. But I also think that this renewed scrutiny comes with weight of racial tones, right? So in the summer Olympics, there were a lot of reports specifically out of swimming and track and field of African-American athletes who were being disqualified from competing in swim because of their caps that were designed specifically for African-American hair. Um, And then there was the well-known track star who found out that her mother had passed away Two days before a drug test, she smoked weed and then was disqualified from participating. Also under U.S. um, decision, lost all of her medals. And you just get this sense of, um, one, no, it's not fair. And I understand that the Olympics are speaking to the fact that the figure skater is only 15. So she follows a different set of rules. But I think to argue that she had no awareness of what was going on is granting a little bit too much, um, especially when we saw such a heavy hand come down on the track star who was very transparent of she found out her biological mother passed away because of a news reporter and just didn't handle it well. So it's hard for me to feel that they're making the right call here when I've seen them um, kind of fail so many other times. Well, I mean,
0: to be honest, I would think they've failed not just on that but i think they failed with actually holding russia accountable at all in this massive doping scandal russian athletes have still been competing not that they have necessarily been doping i guess we don't know the full extent it just hasn't been under the like russian flag basically Mm -hmm. but it's like they're still there and they still have an impact and everybody knows it's russia yeah so oh now they've we find out that this athlete has been doping and you're gonna still let her compete, and it's like, okay, but what about all the other, what about all the other Olympians in that category that might get a medal and don't? They don't get any of the pomp and circumstance that they deserve.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she could place and take someone out of the running that probably deserves to be there. Well, I think, and, and they might, you, they might. Yeah, write I think it. they
1: just bump her off and move everyone up but it it brings up this confusion right it's
0: like come on why are we allowing her to continue to compete and everyone else in that category gets to suffer for that
1: it's so demoralizing but also you have to think on the other side and this argument i've had too of it was very impactful for this 15 year old to still do her performance and Mm -hmm. go down in history even though there might be an asterisk next to it that she had the highest score ever. Like, it it does matter and it is important, but I do agree with you significantly, Caleb, of this isn't unique to the Russian Olympic Committee. They've been in doping scandals before. um, And this is just a reiteration of where is accountability. Yeah, all right, we'll be right back.
0: And we're back. So one of the biggest stories that has been dominating headlines for, honestly, has it been two months now?
1: It feels like two months, maybe just a month. This year has felt like two years already, and we're only into the <laughs> second month. 15th of black, so <laughs> couldn't <laughs> tell you. Black history month. Oh, nice. Um. <laughs>
0: But we might have been a little dramatic by saying that we're going to talk about World War III, but it is worth mentioning and talking in depth about the Ukraine-Russia crisis that is going on right now in the
1: world. I am disappointed that Twitter hasn't brought up the World War III argument yet. They did. It just got old. I was like, we jumped into it so fast with Iran, and everyone's like, ah, Russia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So currently, Russia has amassed troops at the border of Ukraine, everywhere from Crimea, which which Russia actually invaded in the next from Ukraine. Back in 2014 to Belarus, who is a close ally to Russian President Vladimir Putin, and basically everywhere else in between. It's estimated that there are 130,000 Russian troops that are along the border of Ukraine. And U.S. officials have recently stated that there's evidence of a Russian war plan to invade Ukraine with 175,000 troops. Nobody believes Ukraine alone would be able to stop a Russian invasion force that large, even with the U.S. supplied equipment and training. Mm -hmm. The US and its NATO allies have discussed and threatened extra sanctions on Russia if they did invade Ukraine, but it's not entirely clear what the outcome of those sanctions would be. There's been worries that Russia would cut off its supply of gas and fuel to Europe, which would be devastating even if the US began providing its own resources. Devastating because that's where Europe gets most of its resource from is Russia. And what's more Putin and Chinese president Xi Jinping met as the winter Olympics began putting out a joint statement, supporting each other and basically telling the U S and its allies that
1: our version of the world order is coming to an end. And I think important too, that you highlight it. We saw this tactic with Russia um, during the invasion of Crimea, right? Mm -hmm. They started managing the oil supply differently. There was some huge controversy between Russia and the United Kingdom um, as the oil lines started to slow. And you see that they, even though we might have real conversations right now about whether or not they belong on the world stage, they do still have the, the mechanisms and gears and gadgets to control or set narratives in this, this arena. Yeah.
0: I, I will say that, that despite like, The seriousness of this issue. There has been some maybe good news that came out Mm -hmm. this week. So this week uh, actually gave us a meeting between Germany's new chancellor Olaf Scholz and Putin, in which Putin announced that he would pull back some troops from the border. US officials do say that it is too soon to tell if this is a real de-escalation effort, but it is certainly the first major signal of de-escalation since the situation began that Putin has kind of given us. So How did we get here? (laughs) After the fall of the Soviet Union back in the 90s, NATO expanded into a lot of the buffer states that the Soviet Union previously occupied, like the Balkan states, basically any like Poland and whatnot. Most of them border um, Russia, but there's some that are like uh, like a state over from Mm -hmm. Russia. Um, In 2008, NATO um, said it planned to someday add Ukraine to the military alliance that it was created to directly counter the Soviets. So in 2005, Vladimir Putin made it known to the world that he believed the Soviet Union collapse was one of the biggest geopolitical disasters the world has ever seen. He expressed that Ukraine is still a part of Russia historically and culturally, same with Belarus, and that if Ukraine joined NATO, it would be an existential threat to his country. It was also clear that he wanted to return Russia to the glory of the Soviet Union. In 2014, protests ousted Ukraine's president at the time, who was closely allied with Russia, Russia then invaded Crimea, a southern region of Ukraine, and started a separatist rebellion in a different region of Ukraine that has killed about 13,000 people and Mm -hmm. continues today. In the last year alone, Russia has began what some would say is an aggressive effort to shore up past Soviet buffer states. In Kazakhstan, Russian forces were sent to put down the mass protests that began over high gas prices. They have yet to leave. In Belarus, Russia has kept its dictator close and has began formal military exercises with the Belarus military. Yeah.
1: And if I could add one thing to that context, too, especially leaning on where we are now, as I'm sure people are hearing the conversation around sanctions and different mechanisms that are not war for governments to take. Um, Back in 2014, as I'm sure many remember, President Obama took steps to impose some sanctions on different partners of Putin, also key industries in Russia to essentially deter The actions that were happening in Crimea. Um, Among those targets included the president or President Putin's chief of staff, a billion billionaire investor that has links to President Putin, different members of administration that deal with banking. Um, But really, I think setting the tone for what we may see coming out of the Biden administration to shift from specific industries and shift from specific um, companies to really target these sanctions at specific individuals who have ties and who have investments across the globe. Um, because I mean, I think Torrance said it really well in our last podcast, when governments take these actions, what you do tend to see is a immense negative impact on the people of the country, not so much the people in power in the country. And I, uh, Not to rehabilitate Obama's actions under Russia, but I do think that is very strategically important because when they feel it, maybe you will see them come to the table in a more honest way.
0: You know, I think something that I found especially chilling in this was actually the meeting between Putin and Xi Jinping Mm -hmm. because their statement was very detailed in the fact that they aren't going to listen to the U.S. and that they support each other. And so... Xi coming out and saying, Putin, that territory is yours. You can have It's basically them endorsing the idea of them in the future taking Taiwan, which they believe is rightfully theirs. Exactly. (laughs) And that's like, I don't know. It's it's a pretty scary world out there right now. Mm. You know? I mean, I don't think World War III is coming out of this. I'm actually not even sure if Putin Mm. ever intended to invade right now.
1: Well, I mean, there's also reports that... Tomorrow, um, literally as early as tomorrow, February 16th, there could be an invasion. The Mm -hmm. president of Ukraine is calling for a day of unity um, for his people out of fear that really, truly Russian troops might make that first advancement. Um, Yeah. But I do think, uh, and latching onto your point, yes, and. I don't think the scariness of the world has ever changed. Uh, China has been making arguments of why Taiwan is rightfully theirs. Um, they've been making wild advancements in the um, South China Sea. There's There's been a lot of geopolitical actions that have happened that are multi-level and multifaceted. but there has continued to be this sense of There's a line. And I do think this is the first time where we are seeing implications of what happens if someone really truly crosses this line that all of the major powers have of. If the U.S. is willing to go to bat with NATO and say, this is our line, you are not allowed to come into Ukraine, but China and Russia are willing to push. You do feel this anxiety of where did that peacetime go that we've had, even during the war of terror, terror. While Russia might not have inherently supported us or um, the terrorists, if you will, there was still this atomosity and sense of we have to cooperate to some extent. And I do feel like that that era is starting to come to a close. Yeah. And honestly, geopolitics is weird because like
0: you have all of this going on, China and Taiwan, Russia and Ukraine, and then you have the Iran Iran nuclear deal, which we're still mm-hmm. in talks with reinstating in China and Russia
1: are actually in support of that. So mm-hmm. geopolitics is weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, both of them sit on the United Nations Security Council, so they're able to veto anything that the United Nations decide they want to yeah. do to counteract what they're going to do, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother series of arguments and problems that we can get into later. Yeah. I Look, I think Putin... I, Russia's been
0: in the news a lot because they just kind of have their hands in everything it feels like. Right. Whether it's our election or they're hacking something new, um, which I believe a lot of government agencies were just hacked by Russia mm-hmm. the other day in Ukraine specifically. Um, it just seems like they have their hand in misinformation and disinformation campaigns and whatnot. And this is true of Burma, which we're coming up on the uh, anniversary of when the military took over. Mm -hmm. that country. And I mean, we talked about that a year ago. A lot of that is because the Facebook there is so unregulated Mm -hmm. that Russia, and there has been evidence that Russian disinformation campaigns have played a role in some of that. Yeah. But the military is also taking advantage of in Burma. Yeah. Same with Belarus. And I think that like, I kind of have a take an opinion that I kind of want to discuss with you. I actually feel like Putin's not trying to invade right now, but what he is trying to do is kind of push that narrative forward. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing something similar to what I feel like the Republican party and Trump did to us a little bit is we're starting to have conversations about our politics now that didn't exist several years ago. Yeah, And it's because they've pushed us into like a new realm of <laughs> what's the word for it? Like along the spectrum, we've, we've, we've gone a little bit farther into where our conversations go and what is now normal and what was normal five years ago. Right. And I think Putin's trying to do the same thing right here. So I don't think his goal is to invade right now, but if he can make it more and more normal, it's not going to be a big deal in the future when he does invade. I don't know if he will actually invade or if he ever will. Yeah. I, I don't think he, I think he really doesn't want NATO expansion. He Mm -hmm. sees that as a threat and there's some border states that are in part of NATO, but Ukraine isn't one.
1: Yeah. And that's something we've gotten into even personally off the air of, I do think we also need to qualify the irrationality of Putin in this space. Like while I think individuals can understand to some extent his fears of having a NATO alliance right on his doorstep, i.e. if Ukraine were to join, There's also an understanding that NATO was not built with the intentionality of taking out Russia, Mm -hmm. even with even with NATO accepting Ukraine um, into the alliance and them being a full partner. The overall and maybe I'm too rose colored glasses here. (laughs) The overall intentionality of NATO was to one deter us from ever going into another world war. But two, to continue to promote this idea of democracy. That's why individual countries can decide to join the alliance. It's not something that's forced upon them. And while that might be a threat to Russia's ideology, it does not warrant, in my opinion, the reaction that he's having of, I need to claim these areas or I need to step in because if they get here, then my entire country is going to fall again. That's, that was never the intent. That was never the structure. That's never how NATO was built to operate and also the context of 9-11 the institution or the actions of um invoking the all for one article there's never really going to be that flashpoint if you will i think with nato to want to go all in again
0: i think you're right but i am going to push back a little bit because putin grew up in the soviet union nato was built to deter soviet the Soviets Mm -hmm. is what it was built for. Now, since the Soviet union collapsed, NATO was NATO. I I don't know it. And maybe this is too much for me to say, but maybe, maybe NATO didn't have as much of a purpose because the Soviet union wasn't there anymore, but Putin grew up in an era where that was a threat. So it's, to me, it's easy to see whether he knows it is or not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's easy for me to see why Putin sees NATO as a threat. Yeah. But then again, Putin might know exactly, like might agree with you exactly on what NATO is supposed to be. But he might be intentionally using that kind of information asymmetry to get what he wants here. And I think it's been really interesting, too, seeing what the U.S. response has been, because we have had a pretty, what I would say is aggressive response back to them with the Pentagon coming out and saying several times Mm -hmm. that we will fund separatist movements in Ukraine. If Russia invades, we will basically be playing proxy war with them. And we have come outright and said that not that the U S government hasn't played that game before in the past, because we have Mm -hmm. Latin America comes to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Good
1: example. Successfully.
0: I don't think so, but, but the fact that we're coming right out and saying it is certainly a response that I don't, I don't know if I've recalled seeing. I don't mm-hmm. feel like it's a normal response for us to have, and maybe maybe some of this like pushing what the normal is that Putin is playing, and maybe maybe that's what the U.S. is trying to fight against, really.
1: Yeah, and I I think to to that exact point. I question and I challenge, and I know for our listeners, I mentioned earlier, like, no, nah, we shouldn't get into this. But I do question and challenge how much of this is to bear due to the Obama administration. I, We very much were able to move forward rapidly after we could prove and identify that Russian forces moved into the region of Crimea, a part of Ukraine, and just claimed it as their own. Mm -hmm. There may have been some sanctions that came out as I highlighted, but there didn't feel to be this effort by the U.S. to build this um, globalized response as the Biden administration is doing currently, or to really highlight that this is a dangerous narrative to start putting forward. Even beyond that, and I still very much make arguments for why this impacts other institutions, that administration, I think, did see the ramifications of being in a forever war and recognize the lack of appetite for average Americans, because you have that same entity that has now invaded another country, and we've essentially kind of let get away with it hack our elections and play a major role in, just like you mentioned, setting up these new narratives that I think if we could go back in time and tell ourselves, we would be in shock that we're having conversations about an American election being hacked or this ability for misinformation to really win the day. So while I do agree and understand that piece from Putin, I do feel like from a contextual, a much shorter contextual piece there is issue and problem with the fact that um, an administration essentially let let us get to this boiling point, if you will, because we all knew once the Trump administration came in, there was never really going to be a calming or a movement towards what I think we have come to to own as our former normalcy. That's an interesting point you bring up. And
0: before I tackle that right away... I do think it's right to recognize the lack of taste, I guess, Americans or the lack of like, I don't know, motivation Americans would feel about going to war over Crimea, because I actually think that is another reason why the U.S. has had such an aggressive response, because it's very hard for us in America to see why this is a big deal. And I don't think there's an appetite for A war with Russia, especially at just after getting out of a 20 year 20 something year war in Afghanistan. To your point, I am curious, because I don't know, it's it's to me, it's difficult to go back and say, like, like, it's easy now to say, ooh, maybe President Obama made the wrong decision with Crimea. But in that moment, it's very difficult with all the options on the table and what could happen. Like we know a lot more now than they could have predicted then. Fair. But I also want to pose you a question because I'm not saying you're wrong to criticize, but do you think that Russia would still progress in what they are doing that we've seen in the last couple decades? Do you think they were going that direction no matter what and they weren't going to be stopped in any way? I mean- I guess, stopped as a relative term. but Yeah,
1: I mean, yes, I think you can make that argument from, again, a geopolitical sense of their support of Assad and Turkey um, during by far one of the most egregious civil wars to happen in our lifetimes. Um, you could see that in the aspects and the pieces of the invasion of Crimea. You can also see it in the aggressive tones that Putin had towards the Obama administration at the time. However, again, I feel as though, even though we can highlight that the Obama administration was able to craft and build the um, Iran Accords, um, the nuclear agreement, there we go, you can't pinpoint or you can't identify this, this global response against Russia, in that sense, so i I understand, and I do think that context is important. I do think Russia was already kind of bolstering itself and puffing its chest out. However, I feel as though there was never a unified response to really give them a reason to either meet at a negotiating table or really um, um, deter from what they're doing until now we have this administration that's very much using the people pulpit to aggressively come out and say that these are actions that they won't support, to aggressively say, here's the line and how far we're willing to go. Even though you might um, call out Biden for his gaffe when he had his press conference, I can still highlight and you can still identify that this administration does seem to have a, a globalized approach to this and doing the work to not only reinstitute the U.S. on the national stage, but also show it as the king's men, if you will, um, to make those key plays. Do you think that
0: the Biden administration's response to these acts by Russia has been relatively good or bad?
1: I think it's too soon to tell. <laughs> I I will say... I will say... Does it feel strong? Yes. Um, and especially in the sense that you have this new article in the NATO um, agreement that now outlines communication software as a means for declaring war, which for everyone else doesn't seem to be a big deal. For me, I can see that becoming a much bigger problem down the road, but I digress. Um, But I do think something important there is the fact that, what, um, two weeks ago, we were talking about how it was inevitable that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, and now we're at a space of, Well, those weeks have started to push out, even though the president of Ukraine might have highlighted that they have intel or they feel like tomorrow might be a day. You're not hearing that from our Department um, of Defense or our Secretary of State. So I do feel like there have been some of these maneuvers and an aggressive approach for transparency from this administration, to not only have calls with President Putin, but immediately release the transcripts and be able to say, here's what the call is. And here's what I said. So I would argue yes. And again, I would argue that the president is doing a really effective job right now of leaning into the people pulpit, which he hasn't done, mostly because we've been in a pandemic.
0: Yeah, I, I actually do think I would agree. It's felt strong. It's felt adequate. It's just a situation that we just don't, he can have the most perfect response possible. And the situation still has an element of, of unpredictability about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just kind of one of those issues that like, gosh, you know, I really hope that nothing really bad happens, but there's some interesting political gamemanship, I think happening on a geopolitical scale right now between Russia and NATO and maybe in particular the U S yeah. And, as a side note, China too. And I don't know, hope we're hoping for the best (laughs) and we'll have updates if, if any more uh, happens with this, but uh, you know, hopefully nothing crazy happens (laughs) and we'll be right back.
1: All right, Caleb, take us on a tangent.
0: All right, Terrell, came across kind of a interesting, I thought kind of goofy, funny um, bill that's, uh, well, I don't know if the bill itself is funny, but I think the consequences of it are. Um, so a bill was introduced in the Idaho legislature uh, by a candidate that's actually running to become the next top election official in Idaho. And the bill is basically to and same-day voter registration in Idaho. Mm-hmm. So Idaho is, I mean, you can register the same day as the election um, in Idaho, which is pretty awesome.
1: And, something most people don't realize or think about.
0: Yeah, election-day voter registration, which is actually a really nice feature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I like that a lot. I think every state should have that um, in it. But something that I think is like <laughs> kind of funny about this is the bill so the bill would end election day voter registration, um, in which the representative who introduced it, Dorothy Moon, who is a Republican, of course, in Idaho, uh, quote said, quote, "It's a policy crafted by liberal interest groups that has led to increased fraud and ballot manipulation." Even though the Idaho legislator uh, unanimously passed this back in the '90s, um, mm-hmm. and it was like sponsored by like Republicans back in the '90s, which is. That's funny, but that's not actually not actually the funniest part of this. The funniest part is that it would um, it would remove Idaho one of it would remove a distinction that Idaho has. It's just one of six states that's exempt from a federal law from 1993 called the National Voter Registration Act. So Idaho is currently exempt from this because they have the election day voter registration provision for our elections. But what the National Voter Registration Act at the federal level does is it requires states to like, there's a ton of things that it requires states to do. Um whenever you register a vehicle, uh you have you you get to register to vote too. You have to be offered that. Um whenever you interact with any kind of state agency, they have to offer you to register to vote. Mm-hmm. Um there's like a there's like a bunch more, but that's just some of the provisions that actually makes it pretty I would say arguably more accessible to register to vote and removing this election day voter registration would actually enact the national voter registration act from the federal government, which would enact all of these other accessible things to register to vote. Hmm. So it's like, what I think it's funny about this is like we're, I feel like Republicans, especially in the legislature, are just so quick to say, "Oh, it's liberal this, it's liberal that we have to get rid of it, but like this one's funny because you get rid of this liberal thing, and making the vote more accessible, which you're obviously against, becomes potentially more accessible because you remove yourself from the exemption list of that federal bill from <laughs> 20 years ago that's all I hope that wasn't too confusing but <laughs> you and your Idaho politics it's, it's just so like it's like it's like I'm glad these people aren't thinking <laughs> but also like I don't know it's just it's it's just like come on guys like you're just not going to tell that to your voters you're going to say look what I did and not tell them that oh but all these other things are now available <laughs> I don't know it's stupid anyways Terrell take us on a tangent
1: Might be super short and fun because the greatest thing happened on Sunday. (laughs) Matthew Stafford won the Super Bowl with the L.A. Rams and now has as many rings as Aaron Rodgers. So for all those people out there who've always been like, he's not even good. Blah blah. He was always great. He was great. The Detroit Lions did not build a team around him. And I do think you saw that in this game. Um. Also, something very important to highlight is the fact that OBJ also won a Super Bowl. Yeah. Which is so huge and so well-deserved. Cooper Cup had an all-star rocket year. Amazing. Yeah, he's incredible. But to the Matthew Stafford point, as a Detroit Lions fan, um, and why I can always argue that the Lions never built around him, I think you saw in this game... Stafford knows how to use his players appropriately, but also builds a level of trust with all of his receivers. And he knows he can go to Cooper Cup. He always knows he can go to Cooper Cup. Every other team knows that he's going to go to Cooper Cup. So they double, triple, quadruple team him half the time. The same thing they did with Calvin Johnson. When the Rams added OBJ, that was an investment in Stafford to give him more options, to give him more receivers that he trusted. But to also allow him to work with some of the younger receivers and help them to build a culture around him and get better in their skill. The minute OBJ went out, that was when you saw Stafford really have to work and try to help coach these receivers again to understand not only his plays, but also how to be open, how to work in these spaces because Cup was being double teamed and he still pulled it off. He still managed to be able to have conversations with them. And even though you might be like, well, he threw an interception in the super bowl. whoop, did you do? So has Brady. Matthew Stafford is a super bowl winning quarterback. And I couldn't be happier. You know, it was well-deserved. I thought it was a great game. I thought
0: it was refreshing to have two teams that aren't normally in the super bowl or haven't been recently um, in it. And I just thought it was a good game. It was defensive in the second half, Matthew Stafford and Cooper cup specifically found a way to win. Um, and, and, you know, props to to, uh, to to the Bengals. I mean, yeah. they played a good game, and I don't know if I would have been upset if they won either, but Matthew Stafford definitely deserved this one, so that's
1: great. Also, to anyone who made the stupid, oh, it's the Detroit Rams. No, sit down. <laughs> You're irrelevant. The Detroit Lions held him back. That's just 100%. Facts. That's 100%. just facts. But they should not sell the team because a lot of people are starting to push this narrative of like, well, Ford needs to sell the team. The... Issues with the Detroit Lions go far deeper than that. The best coach they ever had was Schwartz. And I know a lot of people are going to be really mad hearing me say that on this podcast because everyone's like, Caldwell was better. I think Caldwell was good at mentoring Stafford, but I think the one head coach that actually had a voice in the room that was actually carrying the day for Stafford was Schwartz. And that's why he got so annoyed when the fans started booing because he knew he was putting in the work. He knew that Stafford was putting in the work. Um, and yeah, I just, I have a lot of great things to say about what happened. Obviously, I'm a big sports guy. <laughs> Even if this isn't a sports podcast, I'm going to bring it on up here. So yeah. Well, last Super Bowl question. How did you think the halftime show went? Oh, it was amazing.
0: Uh, oh, that was
1: great. I am a little annoyed with all the Eminem stuff, but I digress. I don't really care. I mean, I'm I'm glad he took a knee, I guess, but I just. I him. hate the fact that everyone's lifting it up and I'm like. But we still are allowing Colin Kaepernick not to have a job. There's this like
0: there's this thing that I find pretty annoying with like social media Mm -hmm. in general. And that is that like Eminem does this thing where he kneels and the NFL didn't want him to blah, blah, blah. But he did it anyways. And Dr. Dre said he doesn't like the police, which the NFL said no to. But he did it anyways, which Mm is fantastic and awesome. And that's great for them. And like, I don't know. You can criticize it. You cannot. But this thing that social media does is it's like, it's like, oh, look what he did. That's cool. And then you have a bunch of right leaning people who are like, oh my God, Eminem being the only one on stage was racist. And all this bullshit, which makes the left and the people who know that it's not bullshit and support, that kind of stuff louder. And then I feel like it props it up more
1: than maybe it would have been if none of that happened. And I don't know, it's just, Social media is wild. It does make me happy that there's a bunch of conservatives right now who had to watch Dr. Dre perform and are also mad that apparently they never knew Snoop Dogg smoked. But What? I mean, they're legends, honestly.
0: Yeah, no, it was great. Every single one of those rappers on stage were were legends. And I don't know. I I enjoyed the show. We talked about this a little bit. It felt like it could have at least had five more minutes on it. It felt a little short. But other than that, I thought it was great. Yep, I agree. Well, I think that's our show. Thanks for listening. I'm Caleb Smith.
1: And I'm Terrell Couch.
0: And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.